While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Imagine, if you will, that you were driving between like six and eight hours. It's like on the long side of a day, a day trip or like a drive you could make in a day, I guess. Like what fast food restaurant do you hope you can find when it's time to eat? What restaurant will you settle for? And what restaurant will you never stop at in a million years? Okay. Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And Andrew, repeat the three choices for me again. You okay? the The fast food restaurant that you want to find so you can stop and eat lunch, the fast food restaurant that you will settle for, and the one that you would never stop at in a million years. Okay. Now, not implying quality of food. I want a Roy Rogers. That's what I want. <laughs> Explain why. I want their chicken, and I want their steak fries. Okay. All I right. find I find chicken tenders to be the most reliable uh highway food. All right. I understand that. How often do you run into Roy Rogers's though? Um not as often as I would like. Right. <laughs> so I find myself settling for Burger King a lot. Okay. I, and then what is there one that you would never ever stop at? I don't think I would go to a Carl's Jr. Hardee's fiasco. Okay. Why Why is that? Something about the burgers creep me out. I don't think that they're going to be good for me. <laughs> Something about that smiley star. I just Something don't about like that it. smiley star. What about you? What? Where does um, this come from? Well, because we're driving from New Jersey to Ohio. We did it this past weekend. We're going to do it again in two weeks. And it um, it requires you to drive through this long, long stretch of Pennsylvania where you're lucky if you can find a gas station that has, like, credit card swipers on it. Uh-huh. True. Um, <laughs> so what I want to find and that I never can on that trip when I'm hungry is a Chipotle. Oh, no, know... no. Why not? There's not. Come on. They do... That's never going to be there. No, I know. But that's what I want on a road trip because it's, like, reliable and I can eat it pretty fast. And it's just, it's what I want. Um, I will, like, the lowest rung on the ladder that I will settle for is, like, a subway. That's pretty low. I know. Now, there's a whole spectrum. There's a whole world of of road food in between that I would rather settle for. But, (laughs) like, the lowest I'll go is subway. What do you see as below subway? Um, like, Bob Evans. Really? Cause we well, it's it's colored by one experience. We stopped at a Bob Evans on this trip once, and we got you know it's it's Bob Evans. It's like a chain breakfast food place, and we ordered like eggs. Like how hard? How hard is it? Apparently, it's really hard because they were swimming in oil, and we felt sick for like hours after we had finished oh. eating it. And so yeah, Bob Evans specifically 
has earned our ire and we just will not even consider it anymore. How do you feel about Perkins? Um, a family restaurant. I guess if I was going to do, I mean, there, there are a whole bunch of them in that, like um, Cracker Barrel, Applebee's milieu. That, I, don't, that I, I don't equate consider. Applebee's and Cracker Barrel at all, but sure. I mean, I just think that they're all more or less interchangeable in terms of like Americana okay road stuff food. on the walls get a burger we did find a fake cracker barrel in the middle of pennsylvania once a cracken barrel what is that called? it was try. it was trying to emulate it it's called like the country diner or something oh, yeah. it was trying to it was so close to cracker barrel that they even had the little like peg game that tells you you're yeah you can't get rid of all the pegs uh-huh uh-huh i like restaurants that have games that you can play while you wait for your food yeah, so this is a podcast that where we talk about books, right? Is that the Welcome idea? to Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives, the podcast. <laughs> I'm Guy Fieri. Oh, Guy Fieri. Um, real quick, I am in Maine. I, I just went on a road trip to Maine, and I brought everything I needed to record except the thing that connects the mic to the computer. Uh, so my mic quality isn't as good as usual. Sorry. It'll be better next time. That's all I Jeez have to Craig. say. Jeez, we just cannot get on an audio quality roll lately. I don't know. Uh, what it we're is. doing okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the subtitle of this podcast. And eh, we're doing okay. It'll be fine. We'll fix it in post. So you read a book this week. Who is it by and what is it? And tell me about it. It is a collection of stories <laughs> and essays called Everything and Nothing, written by Jorge Luis Borges. Now, I will say that the internet is conflicted as to how to pronounce Mr. Borges' last name. I am conflicted as how to pronounce it, as I don't think I can do it correctly, no matter which way I pick. But you've obviously rolled the dice. I've rolled <laughs> the dice. Um, I'm disagreeing with the YouTube lady who says things oddly calmly, because um, she's using a hard G, which I, I found some literature that disagrees with. So I'm okay. going with Borges. All right. It'll probably come out as Borges sometimes, and that's probably not correct. But he less, is less correct. <laughs> he is an Argentinian writer from the 20th century, born in 1899, uh, died in 1986. Uh, we'll talk about him in a little bit. But Andrew, we had some emails that you wanted to go over because last week was a guest episode, and then we did our like episode out of time for Children's Week. Is there stuff from our listeners that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, we've gotten a lot of emails, and um, we're only going to respond to a couple on air this week. But you know, we got we got some from Sarah and and Saren and Aaron and lots of lots of a bunch of other hobbits rhyming going on. <laughs> Thor and Oakenshield <laughs> and Jennifer and Robbie and Rachel and a whole bunch of others. Um, we're going to try to actually be a little better about responding to every one of those. Like on Twitter makes it really easy because I can just like favorite stuff and that that like counts as engagement. <laughs> it absolves you from writing a sentence or having a thought. Yes. Yes. Right. Um, so I'm going to start with one funny one from Jennifer. And she ties she um, the subject of this email is struck me funny, which is something we use really intermittently when there's some <laughs> weird turn of phrase in, in a book that we just can't respond to in any other way. Uh huh. Um. She was listening to our episode from a while back about um, Agatha Christie's The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. Yeah. 
And um, she says, in that episode, you reference a few lines that given the changes in today's society are not necessarily appropriate or accepted. And it made me think of another one of her books that I read. I can't remember the name of the book. She wrote so many, but it was one of the Miss Marple novels. In this book, Miss Marple is getting on an age and people keep referring to her as an old pussy <laughs> multiple times, too many times to count. I had the absolute worst time reading it because of that. Yeah, Agatha Christie's one of those writers who there's a certain amount of revisionism that had to happen. I I saw a play recently called uh and then there were none and I think the original title was 10 Little Indians and it's like little soldiers that get knocked off of a mantelpiece. There's some other kind of unsavory language that had to get kind of wiped clean as that thing had took a life on stage. Um she comes came from a different time. Yeah, there's a whole other debate to be had about like the about going back and changing older works to like get rid of really bad racism and turns of phrase and stuff. That yeah, I, don't think I think she was responsible now, but... for some of it, which is one thing, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, then it, then you get into the whole like Mark Twain, Huck Finn kind of stuff, and that's that's a different debate. Right. Yeah. Um, and then there, we got another email from Sean. A, this is 11 days ago, so we're a little slow to respond, but we've, we've been we've been all over the place lately. Um, this is in response to our How Not to Write a Novel episode from a couple of weeks ago. Um, and he was he wanted to talk about like the gatekeepers of literature. He says, I know the tone of how not to write is tongue in cheek, but a lot of the points still sound like the same complaint that gets trotted out every November when National Novel Writing Month comes around. Your writing couldn't possibly be good enough, and you are literally killing the poor put-upon editor who has to read your schlock. I don't know. The capital G gatekeepers of capital S stories get to determine who is worthy to tell their story in the first place and try to discourage anyone unworthy from even trying. Uh, the gatekeepers are the ones who tell us that YA fiction isn't real or serious, and therefore anyone who reads it should be ashamed that they're not reading real literature. In this case, it's the audience that's unworthy. Never mind that it's still reading. Never mind that it's still getting the reader to empathize with another person and use their brain more actively than just passively watching TV or playing Candy Crush. But again, the gatekeepers have decided that these stories aren't really worthy to be out there, and everyone who enjoys them should be ashamed of what makes them happy. Of course, I don't believe that there's really an actual secret cabal of gatekeepers out there meeting and plotting to decide what stories and authors are of value but i still think the systems that decide who is able to tell what stories to whom are deeply entrenched and the fact that some people and their stories are judged unworthy does us and literature itself a great disservice hmm. and there's some more but that that's like the thrust of it is that i guess that, i mean and, and we talked about that some in the, in the episode too um but that there are still in literature like a lot of big publishing houses and and stuff that things get filtered through and they like just by the nature of being filters they can't help but but weed certain kinds of things out i guess does that make sense yeah there's there's two sides of that argument one that i think sean is actually working towards that is you know cheering for the disenfranchised and we have we should kind of what we talked about in our bad feminist episode actually you know making room for voices that don't always get heard or at least honoring the fact that those voices exist whether or not you are you know taking time to champion them but then the flip side of that is the logical argument that i think people lean on in a way that's perhaps ultimately unhelpful is the quality argument of like well what makes it good is it 
what we were talking about in how not to how not to write a novel, or are people using the well, I'm just arguing for good books argument as a reason to <laughs> like keep out writers that they don't uh, think will sell, or writers that are minority writers, you know, anything like that. Uh, yeah, and I think there's two sides through to that in sort. that came through in the tone of that book a little bit was that a lot of their examples had exceptions and they said, you know, they kept saying, it's not that this can't be done well, but you probably shouldn't try to do it. Well. There's that's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, and that's something I tried to talk about a little bit in the, in the episode that I think I didn't really know how to articulate was there's something about that book in particular that seemed really geared towards you want to write a book that will get published and sold at Walmart or on a bookshelf anywhere. Like you are not writing for the literati, you know, you mm. are just trying to write a plot that people might hope gets turned into a movie. Right. Um, so that kind of takes out a lot of the more nuanced rule breaking type fiction that you tend to think of when you think of capital L literature, you know? Right. So, Okay, um, so that's that's our mailbag for the week, I guess. Keep keep sending them because I really like getting them and reading them. Um, from the ones that are that are longer and argue a, a big point to the ones that are just a couple sentences that tell tell us how much you like the show. Like we enjoy both of them equally, and we're gonna try and be a little bit better about about responding to them um, from here on. So yeah, uh, Craig, uh, let's talk about Jorge Luis Borges, I guess. Yeah, how Andrew, have you read any of his stuff? I have not. Yeah, I had not either, though I've heard his name a lot. And certainly his name came up, I guess, most recently for our purposes. The couple times that we've talked about um, Marquez and even as I was reading Lovecraft, uh, this, you know, early to mid 20th century fiction style that is uh, for, for Lovecraft is this kind of melange of essay writing and short fiction and for Marquez it's the the explosion of um, Latin American writers coming out of the mid uh, 20th century that I I think a lot of people credit Borges with uh, starting or at least the the kind of global discovery of him as opening the door for perhaps yeah there's um I guess uh something called the Latin American boom in yes. uh, the 60s and 70s that um, Borges was included in. And, you know, it was partly because his works were being widely circulated in, in English by then, and uh, partly because of Marquez, and in particular, I guess, 100 Years of Solitude is a big work in this uh, hmm. in this boom. But, yeah, there were a lot of, um, like, Marquez's one, Carlos Fuentes. There are a bunch of uh, Latin American authors who at around this time are, are all getting discovered or... Um, more famous than they were or like achieving fame outside of their home countries at this point. And um, yeah, Borges was a big part of that. Yeah. So he was the son of a, of a former military man. Uh, his whole family has a lot of military service in it in Buenos Aires. Uh, when he was in the, like the first two centuries of the 20th century, uh, he was living in Europe, actually in Geneva, I believe. Mm-hmm. and was reading a lot of English literature. His dad had uh, like a big English literature correct collection. Um, he translated yeah, they... a short story of Oscar Wilde's when he was really young. Um, 
And then he fell in with this movement called the Ultraist movement, which is kind of the best name ever. Ultraists. <laughs> ultraists. <laughs> which I think what's, is actually... What were the ultraists about? Besides like turning into cars or whatever <laughs> it was that they did. They were into ro giant robot lions that turned into <laughs> gianter robot lions. Uh, they were kind of of a piece with surrealism and Dadaism and futurism, these reactions against modernism um, or what they called moderni modernismo, which is a okay. term I, you know, I don't know anything about that movement because it's largely a Spanish movement whose writers I'm unfamiliar with. Mm -hmm. um, but that in and of itself was kind of an amped up romanticism, very lyrical, uh, very much, you know, going into these characters' heads and, you know, waxing poetic about their lives. Um, and Ultraism seemed, it was derived from this one magazine where everyone was getting their stuff published called Ultra. Uh, and one of the things that Borges championed as he was summing up what Ultraism was, is the synthesis of two or more images into one, thus widening its suggestiveness. So why say two things when you can just say the one and have both meanings exist simultaneously? Okay. Um, kind of acknowledging the poetry of that. Mm -hmm. And Borges was a poet first. He actually didn't start writing fiction until he suffered a head wound in the late 30s. His father had died. He was going through some uh, bouts of depression while he was working at this library. And he suffered this head wound, and when... He, the, all the doctors told him that he might not make a full recovery and that it was really scary in his mental state. They were worried about it. And he was scared to go back to writing. He'd been writing essays and poetry. So he decided to try fiction because if he found he couldn't do it, he would be less disappointed because he already thought he couldn't do it, which I think <laughs> is pretty funny. Uh, and that resulted in a, the first collection of fiction that he wrote. Uh, which I think, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, Fictionis, or probably just Fictions, which mm -hmm. five of the stories from this collection include. Right, because you were saying that this collection is not one that he himself did. It was it was something that was put together by somebody else, right? Do you, was it any particular person, or was it just the publisher? Or uh, the publisher is New Directions, um, and the edition is called A New Directions Pearl. Uh, the translators, let me t see if I can find them real quick. A um, couple, couple of different translators. Um, Donald Yates, James Irby, John Fine, Elliot Weinberger. Okay. Um, so. Uh, the other big thing about Borges that's probably worth noting is that he had a hereditary condition of blindness that he, in, you know, he inherited because it's hereditary. That's what that word means. Um, <laughs> Good one. Good one, Dr. Science. Yeah. Uh, he started suffering from it in his 30s, and he was close to fully blind by the time of his death in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably why most of what he wrote was really short. Um, you know, he was able to memorize poetry that he could then dictate. Uh, his later essays get shorter and shorter. Uh I don't know. I feel like there's a connection there. And he's there's an essay at the end of this book that's actually a uh, a speech he gave that is called Blindness. And it's about how he's embraced it as part of his artistic life, that it's kind of mm -hmm. 
changed what he, you know, metaphorically sees uh, and the types of things that he chose to write about, and also his fascination with language. He's fascinated by Old Norse and Old English, uh, and this kind of comes out of him not having other things to go see. You know, he might have taken to visual art in a way that he didn't because of this condition, you know. Mm -hmm. um, what Was there anything else that you thought was pretty interesting about him, Andrew? Um, there were two things. I mean, you already mentioned that when he was nine, he translated The Happy Prince by Oscar Wilde into yeah. Spanish from English. Um, he got it published in a local journal, I guess, and um, it was like a lot of people thought his dad did it. Basically. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> apparently his dad like harbored these literary aspirations. Mm -hmm. um, Borges himself said his dad tried to become a writer and failed in the attempt. So... That's sad. But, but, you know, by the same token, he was, um, he felt a little conflicted because all of, you know, he, he had this rich family history of like military men and, and people who were physically competent. Yeah. He was, he was more bookish and like reserved and he had mixed feelings about that, at least, at least for a while in his, in his youth. Um, yeah, so he says that, he was... I thought that was neat. And um, mm -hmm. oh, go ahead. Oh, he was. He said he was drawn to epic poetry and epic stories because of that kind of ingrained feeling of a man should be brave and a man accomplishes things in the world, you know, and that mm -hmm. is derived from his military heritage. Uh, I find it interesting that he didn't write a lot. You know, he didn't write big adventure stories or anything like that. But he certainly is fascinated with the stories that came before him that are in that mode. Right. And then um, the last thing is that he is uh, associated with this movement called magical realism. Yes. Um, the short version of that is that it's an acceptance of magic in the rational world. And I thought that was um, interesting giving our, given our uh, low fantasy conversation. Oh from yeah. The children's book week episode. We, we couldn't quite figure out where Harry Potter was. And I think it's like magical realism. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Okay. Sure. So Harry Potter is magical realism. We've settled the great debate. It's cool. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was. It's associated with like him and Marquez. It was first used by um, Angel Flores to refer to uh, Borges' work, but mm. there were some, you know, there were some predecessors in that movement, and there were some successors, and a lot of people think that um, Borges is just kind of an influencer of magical realism. He's not really a member of that movement himself but yeah that's uh that's a that's a topic of some debate i guess well i guess that can, that can start us into the discussion of the stories today because i wouldn't say that anything in this collection i read would really qualify as magical realism it's mm -hmm. more that his right his writing tends to imply far more than it actually gives you which i think magical realism certainly enjoys we talked about that with the borrowers right yeah but there's a quote from him this actually reminds me of a couple different quotes i want to give to uh kind of characterize his writing his, his friend calares adolfo bioi calares or casares excuse me um, it's quite a week for pronunciation yeah i know <laughs> I bear with us write in and tell us what we did wrong uh he says that Borges's work was halfway, they were halfway houses between an essay and a story. Mm -hmm. And for me, that the access point there is, is Lovecraft, where it's this kind of academic tone about something that is fictional. 
if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Uh, And the first story in this collection actually, you know, exemplifies that. It's Pierre Menard, author of The Quixote. And it's about this guy. It's a fictional book review, Andrew. Okay. So just just wrap your mind around that. Uh, And part of that is there's a great quote from Borges where he says, The composition of vast books is a laborious and impoverishing extravagance. A better course of procedure is to pretend that these books already exist and then to offer a resume, a commentary. More reasonable, more inept, more indolent, I have preferred, I have preferred to write notes upon imaginary books. <laughs> so rather than like write a giant novel that explores the themes he's interested in, he'll just presume that this novel already exists and then write about what it means, which I think is kind of cool. That sounds like a really rich vein. Like there should be a website dedicated to reviewing things that don't really exist. <laughs> like a Yelp like a sort of, for like restaurants a sort of that a, don't exist. Like an AV club, but for like movies that haven't actually been made. <laughs> or like a pitchfork for music that doesn't exist. Right, yeah. Oh, God. Someone start that and then give us all the credit. Yeah. Um, I think we could just skim like 20% off the top. We could talk about it. <laughs> We'll have our lawyers call you. <laughs> uh, so this Quixote essay, and it really does, it, it feels like an essay, and the authorial voice is like somewhere between Borges and a fictional character. There are some jokes about Calvinism that I don't get that I understand to be jokes from reading about the story. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and a part of it, and that's kind of, Overall, there's stuff in Borges that he's writing for his circle of author friends because he wasn't, you know, most of these stories were written between the 30s and 1950. So he wasn't really globally discovered by then. He's writing for his circle of friends, you know. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But so this story concerns a fictional author named Pierre Menard who has, you know, a fictional bibliography in this essay. And he is attempting to recreate word for word, line by line, Without transcribing it, the ninth and thirty-eighth chapters of Cervantes's Don Quixote. Okay. So he's not. Now is this like a monkey typewriter situation? Like it's sort of like a monkey typewriter situation. And there's another story of Borges's called the Library of Babel that kind of tackles this whole concept from the monkey typewriter idea, Andrew, which is like it contains every book that's ever been written by the sheer, like, infinity of the library, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas this one is all about how the reader gives the text meaning. So I I want to just read an excerpt from this uh, fictional review where the the reviewer is praising Menard's version of of Don Quixote uh, for being more illusionary. It is a revelation to compare Menard's Don Quixote with Cervantes. The latter, for example, wrote, Truth, whose whose mother is history, rival of time, depository of deeds, witness of the past, exemplar and advisor to the present, and the future's counselor. Written in the 17th century, written by the lay genius Cervantes, this enumeration is a mere rhetorical praise of history. Menard, on the other hand, writes, Truth whose mother is history, rival of time, depository of deeds, witness of the past, exemplar and advisor to the present, and the future's counselor. The idea is astounding. <laughs> so he's kind of, he's just playing with, 
he's basically saying that 300 years later, the exact same language has an entirely different uh, pedigree, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. Um, which I think, you know, to say it out loud sounds kind of perfunctory, but from when done in the context of a fake review of a book, it kind of also points out how just reviews of books in general are bizarre, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Like how so? Well, in that, or like... Just, just like you're trying to you're trying to take something that is, by its very nature, like a subjective experience and assign a value to it or something, like an objective value. Yeah, and that your the value you are attaching to it is subjective to your experience as well like there's no i i'm that's something that i think the internet has been wrestling with since becoming the internet where like all opinions are welcome but some opinions pretend to be fact and they're based on things that are subjective in the first place so people get mad that they're not objective you know what i mean right yeah 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 so it's just i i think to what you were saying, the, the monkey typewriter issue. It's this is tackling it from the other from the other side, um, and that this technique that Menard has created fictionally um, is basically takes the art of reading and creates something new that is of deliberate anachronism and erroneous attribution. Uh, this technique, whose applications are infinite, prompts us to go through the Odyssey as if it were posterior to the Aeneid. And the book Le Jardin de Centaur, as if it were, oh, of Madame Henri Bachelier, as if it were by Madame Henri Bachelier. Like, there's just like a whole bunch of reflections and mirrors of the same work on top of one another. Uh-huh. It's cool. It's weird. It's, I don't know, it, it questions what authorship is. Like, if, if any story is original at all. Does that make sense? I suppose, yeah. I mean, <laughs> there is nothing new under the sun. You know, there's any any work of fiction or any song or any movie that comes out today. Like, And that's kind of part of the language of review to some extent is, is to define something in terms of, you know, how it relates to something else. Like anytime you you describe a movie as being like, the Terminator combined with alien or something like if it, it, I don't know what movie that would be, but I think it's predator. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you use those, you use those, um, touchstones, I guess. And, and even, you know, if you go back to those reviews, maybe you'll find similar comparisons and you can just go back and back and back and back and just find everything framed in terms of, of how it's kind of a, inspired by or ripped off from something else well yeah and just then the other half of it being like whatever that thing you're reviewing if you reviewed it a hundred years from now it's vastly different you know Mm -hmm. yeah Um, you can only presume what it was once intended to be and it its original mode is now different because it is you know being used later Right, which is why we try when we come to stuff like this and like a lot of other books to to try and research at least a little bit of the historical context to I mean we can never fill in what it would be like for a for a contemporary reader to read something from like eighteen fifty, but we can at least try and figure out like what is motivating those people or what they would have understood to be true, you know? 
Well, yeah, but then it also raises the question of what is our experience of it now? You know, like if we only experience it through the past, is that giving is that giving our experience of it today short shrift? Mm-hmm. I don't know. No, All right, let's move obviously on. Obviously, we'll we'll respond to stuff. As, you know, we'll we'll read something, and because we are reading it now, we won't help. We won't be able to help. You know, thinking about it through a modern lens. Precisely. Like I'm reading, I'm reading this Anne Bronte book now, and um, it goes back to a lot of the stuff we've talked about in our Jane Austen episodes of like people with nothing but time on their hands who are really occupied with with being married, and it's. On the one hand, like it's it seems kind of weird now because we've come quite a ways from that. But on the other hand, like that's just what it was like to be alive then for that particular class of people. So and there's no reason not to have told stories about it then, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So I want to move on to a a story that I think you will find interesting, Andrew. It's called. Now, is there any before you tell me about this particular story? Like, is there any thread that's tying any of these together like when the people who Mm. collected it collected it like what was their what was their deal what was their aim i think their aim was to give you a snapshot of different phases of his career and styles of his writing Um, all right there's as i was doing research on him there were numerous references to his writing of detective stories uh some of which he wrote co-wrote with his friend uh, Casares, but there's only one detective story or detective style story in this collection, um, and that one is called "The Death and the Compass" or "Death and the Compass." Um, okay. So, yeah, this is really just there isn't a true through line of this uh, of this collection. To answer your question. Okay. Cool. Go on. Uh, go on with your story about your story. <laughs> okay. Great. This one is called. I'm gonna. All these pronunciations are gonna be bad because they're not real things. Uh, Tlone Ukbar Urbis Tertius. All right. What does any of that sound like to you? It sounds Andrew? like fake e Latin. Yeah, sort of. So this story is basically what, about one giant Wikipedia hoax. Okay. Just, okay. Let's just start there. It starts with. Presumably Borges, the the unnamed author, hanging out with his buddy, and his buddy quotes like an axiom, and he can't remember where he gets the axiom from. And then they realize that it's from this country called Ukbar, and they try and look it up in the encyclopedia, and they can't find it. And then they find a different edition of the same encyclopedia that has four extra pages in it, and those four extra pages are on this country that doesn't exist in any other edition of the encyclopedia this country called ukbar all right so then later on in his life the author discovers uh like left behind at a hotel bar the first encyclopedia of tlan volume 11 and it is an encyclopedia of a fictional world named tlan and all of its languages and the people who live there, and its philosophies, and the different schemes of mathematics that they have. It's, and then, uh, so apparently a secret society decided to invent a fake country in the 17th century. Okay. And then an American man in the 19th century said, 
that's not enough. In America, it is not enough to invent a country. We did that already. You need to invent a whole world. <laughs> so he paid them basically the rest of his money in perpetuity to create this fake set of encyclopedia that would promulgate this world shadow-like throughout literary circles, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, one of the interesting things about this fake universe that exists uh, is that, like a lot of Borges stories, it has to do with time. It kind of presumes that time exists in many different ways. Um, so I want to read uh, this passage real quick. One of the schools of Tlan goes so far as to negate time. It reasons that the present is indefinite, that the future has no reality other than as a present hope, that the past has no reality other than as a present memory. Another school declares that all time has already transpired and that our life is only crepuscular and no doubt falsified and mutilated memory or reflection of an irrecoverable process. Another that the history of the universe is the scripture produced by a subordinate god in order to communicate with a demon. Another that the universe is comparable to those cryptographs in which not all the symbols are valid and that only what happens every 300 nights is true. Another that while we sleep here we are awake elsewhere and that in this way every man is two men. Yo, Borges was on some stuff. Yeah, like I can definitely see the magical realism argument because, I don't know, this uses some words and things that we're familiar with, but it's also way out there and <laughs> crazy weird. It is crazy weird. But he's also presenting it as like this factual story of a time right. he fell down an internet rabbit hole, basically. There's another one that I found on... Uh, it's called, what is it called? Um, the Story Behind Jardo Wens, which is a fictional Australian Aboriginal god, which is apparently a giant Wikipedia hoax mm -hmm. that has just gone on for like nine years now that people have debunked so many times, but it it has like spread its tendrils into other parts of the internet and been cited in books. It's like Slender Man, Andrew. <laughs> so where this kind of culminates aside from the the interesting thing that the the story itself does is it kind of uses this fictional encyclopedia art entry to point back at things that we already do like it deconstructs how language is created by explaining the various languages not unlike you know Tolkien loved languages so he invented a bunch of them and to study them is to also just study how linguistics work right Mm -hmm. uh, but the point of it kind of boils down to the way that this fantastical, unreal world impinges upon our real one. Um, the author uh, relays two stories, one of a princess who receives a gift from another, you know, royal or something that is a compass with this fake language written on it as if it were like a precious artifact. Uh, and then another is there's this guy who dies in a hotel hallway and this mysterious metal cone falls out of his pocket <clears throat> and it is a holy trinket from this fake world. And from there, the author tells you that all of the great minds on earth in colleges and universities everywhere 
are now no longer studying the actual history of the world, they are studying this fictional world and all of its fictional languages and sciences and philosophies. And mm -hmm. it's like subsuming our entire reality. What? Yeah. I mean, that's... I feel like this would have been like The Matrix. Uh-huh. For like 1940 or whatever time it was actually published because then you'd have a bunch of people... Like, I don't know, they would go to the opium den and they they smoke up on some opium and then they'd be like, hey, man, how do you know that anything is real? How do you know that, <laughs> how do you know, we weren't just taught fake stuff out of encyclopedia, man. Don't believe the man. Don't believe your teach. <laughs> the, there's this quote from Borges on his style of writing where he's talking about how as a younger writer, he felt he had to over-explain everything and kind of overwrite. He feels a lot of young writers do this. And he moves to a type of story where he says, uh, my writing, it merely tells the story. And the reader is, I suppose, made to feel that the story goes deeper than the story itself. Uh, and I feel like with both of these works, you know, both in Pierre Menard, there's an element of fragments, right? Um, in Menard, there's, he didn't rewrite all of Quixote. He only wrote a couple of chapters of it. And this fake encyclopedia of this fake planet uh, kind of gains strength by the fact that you... It's not like someone didn't buy you a, the a collection of Talon encyclopedias, right? It's like uh -huh. you, found, you found it in a back room somewhere and you can't find it anywhere else. So that creates the sense of mystery and meaning that you spiral out of control until the whole world is interested in this thing. Right. Cause, uh, cause then you even like reverse what it actually is. Like you, you think, Oh, somebody must've hidden this because it contains stuff that the man doesn't want you to know. Precisely. It's like exactly the reverse. Well, and then it speaks to his style overall, which is I'm not going to write this giant book about this thing. I'm just going to give you a sliver, like a little peek into the story itself as it's, as if I were reporting on it. And then you're mm -hmm. going to want to go out and imagine more about its implications. You know. Yeah, that's kind of a theme that I'm that I'm sensing in all the stuff that you've you've read me so far is that, you know, like like you said, he focuses more on short stuff than on long stuff. Like he wasn't a novelist, mm -hmm. but in a lot of his short stories, he's like suggesting a lot more than he is actually writing. Like he's referencing these big long works and making you feel like they exist and that they have ramifications, even though they are not real. Yeah, I, to imagine the man that existed in the world, actually, I wonder if just because of his voracious love of reading, if to sit and carve out an entire novel would have just taken more time than he wanted to spend. <laughs> like, yeah, he had too many <laughs> books to read. Mm -hmm. uh, the last one that I want to directly talk about is the one, the only one that I'd really heard a lot about going into it, which is called The Garden of Forking Paths. And this one uses the genre of the spy story to explore similar kind of metaphysical implications that crop up in the Talon story. Uh, so this is about a spy in World War I named Dr. Soup, uh, Yutsun, excuse me, and he's working for the Germans, and he hates the Germans. He's a Chinese man working for the Germans. He hates them. He knows that they're racist. Uh, and, but he wants to prove that someone that of a descent that his kind of 
commanders uh, disapprove of could still save lives with, you know, precious information. Mm -hmm. So soon has uncovered this uh, piece of intelligence about the British military. There's a location of an artillery base and he needs to deliver it to his superiors, but he's on the, he's on the hunt. Like someone is being, someone from MI5 is chasing him. Captain Madden is. So this is kind of set up like a, like a pot boiler. Like what's he going to do? How's he going to get this information? The reader doesn't even really know what the information is. Um, and how's he going to get it to the people who need it? Right. Um, which is also interesting because you're, you're reading it from a Western perspective, at least I am, that knows that the Germans are both the losers and the bad guys in this scenario. Mm-hmm. And Borges himself was, you know, this is World War I, but he was a, a public advocate, you know, public supporter of the Allies in World War II. So this is interesting that he decided to write about someone on the other side. Yeah. Um, but so what happens in this story is uh, while running from this MI5 agent, uh, Dr. Soon gets on a train and he ends up at the house of Dr. Stephen Albert, who is a noted Chinese scholar for being a, a British man. And as soon as Soon arrives, he says, oh, you are uh, a descendant of Si Peng. I can see that. And you would like to see the Garden of Forking Paths. And Soon's like, well, uh, okay, yes, I it's would gonna, like gonna to see. Don't wash your mouth out with soap. <laughs> you know. Try, try to keep it clean, okay? Come on, man. And he says, well, I would like, yeah, sure. I would, I would like to see the great work of my ancestor. And Si Peng was, you know, uh, worked for the government hundreds of years ago in, in China, but resigned from his post, so the story goes, to work on two massive projects, an infinite novel and an inf- infinite labyrinth, both of which men could lose themselves in forever. Okay. Mm-hmm. So then this scholar, Dr. Albert, has been working on it, working on this thing for decades. And he says to Soon, I've found it. Here is the garden of uh, forking paths. And here is your ancestor's labyrinth. And it's just the book. And it's this whole mess of incongruous drafts of various stories where in like chapter three the hero dies and in chapter four he's alive again uh and for centuries everyone said that it's just garbage and it doesn't mean anything and albert says no this was his labyrinth all along he is implying an infinity here that is that is both book and labyrinth if that makes sense andrew Mm -hmm. and the name of the book was infinite jest no (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but sort of, right? Yeah, um, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking of it like I, I, every time somebody says, oh, this summer I'm going to read Infinite Jest. It's like, OK, have fun in that hedge maze. <laughs> I'll see you in September. <laughs> that book's pretty great. It would uh, it merits discussion on the show, but it would probably need like four episodes. I really would like to read it this summer, but I'm not like I'm not foolhardy enough to say that I'm gonna gonna attempt it. So. I said I was gonna read that book in a summer, and it took me a year and a half. All right, so there you go. Summer um, to summer, some summers. <laughs> so there's a quote from this fictional 
an ancestor of the protagonist, where he says, I leave to the various futures, not to all, my garden of forking paths, which the scholar Albert has used as kind of unlocking the idea that the various forking paths are not in space, they're in time. So a rereading of the work is confirms this theory. So I'm going to give you his explanation of how the novel works. Okay. As character Fang, let us say, has a secret. A stranger calls at his door. Fang resolves to kill him. Naturally, there are several possible outcomes. Fang can kill the intruder. The intruder can kill Fang. They both can escape. They both can die, and so forth. In the work of Sui Pen, all possible outcomes occur. Each one is the point of departure for other forkings. Sometimes the paths of this labyrinth converge. For example, you arrive at this house, but in one of the possible paths, you are my enemy, in another, my friend. If you will resign yourself to my incurable pronunciation, we should read a few pages. Uh, so he goes on to read more, and you kind of, it kind of blows the main character's mind. He is. Well, like, he also kind of invented the choose your own adventure book, it sounds like. Sort of, yeah. Except there's, a, there's another passage where Albert says, you know, at the time of the writing, the novel was deplored as kind of a, a waste of time. Um, okay. It was not a high-minded pursuit to write a novel. And he says, your, your ancestor was not interested in low-minded pursuits. He clearly wrote this as a way to express his philosophy of the world, his experience of how the world works, that at all times, multiple versions of events are occurring. Obviously, you right now are experiencing just one, and at certain points in time, space, they will converge, and certain events may be similar, but then they will spread out again. Um, mm -hmm. And this story has kind of been cited as a literary parallel to what was going on in the mid middle of the 20th century with discussion of like quantum dynamics and how electrons are in multiple places at any given time and right. how our, our perception of time is by our very nature limited and it probably is doing other things that we can't perceive at all. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's interesting. Uh, the way it ends is the main character ends up shooting Dr. Albert because the guard, the, the location of his secret was Albert's field in Britain. And the only way that he could convey the information was to kill this man and have his name appear in the papers. Uh, huh. And that is exactly what happens, which is funny because when I was reading it, I didn't pick up on the fact that earlier on they never tell you, Borges never tells you what the secret is. So you this was his plan all along, which was to go and kill this guy. But he did not know that this guy would have the secrets of his ancestry like on his desk. Right. Which is kind of neat. Huh. Uh, and this book gets talked a lot about as not only having to do with quantum mechanics, but also like being a precursor to a hypertextual novel, the idea of hypertext, okay. Andrew, as you are familiar with from web coding, I suppose. From the internet, yes, from, yes. from links and web rings and such. Yes, I understand. <laughs> or, you know, just the idea that uh, you can read something in one part of a book and it is connected to another, but not linearly. It is... right. You know, you click on a thing and it takes you somewhere else and then that takes you somewhere else and then it could take you back to the original thing, but now your understanding of the original thing is different. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, again, this is none of this is quote-unquote magical realism. 
but there's all there's like an iceberg effect going on where right it sounds like there's like this trippy dreamy sort of sort of thing going on that again yeah yeah like you said an iceberg it it suggests a lot more than is actually there yes Hmm. um it's cool i i really like the stories and and some of the essays go by pretty quick too um there's one that's just worth mentioning briefly called kafka and his precursors where he talks about stories throughout history that remind him of kafka and how weird that is because obviously they had nothing to do with kafka when they were written Mm -hmm. but that author was so singular that he defines the very people that uh we would then say are are his own influences if that makes sense Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, yeah i think a lot of we we kind of talk about that sensation on the show a lot of authors we read or or things we see on tv and then we go back and we read the people that came before them and we can draw a line between them and borges is similar in that so many authors cite him as an influence but our experience of that is to know the more contemporary voice first and then our our understanding of the voice that came before it is forever changed by the fact that we know these more recent things Mm-hmm. I don't know. That that relates back to the Menard story as well, I think. Hmm. Okay, so um I don't know, like how long was this was this collection? Like would you would you encourage people to like just go out and pick it up if they wanna Yes. If I... they want to be driven insane or what <laughs> <laughs> what's what was your experience with it? It's it's like a hundred pages. They go by pretty fast. Um mm-hmm. I never felt like I was rushing through them. And again, like his style is such to always leave you wanting more anyway and to leave yeah. you. Even though it sounds pretty dense, like it sounds like there's a lot to take in in any given story. Yeah, I definitely feel like I missed stuff. Um, yeah. And there's certainly things that I will never get in terms of what he's referencing, right? Um, mm-hmm. But also, he just seems to have, he has such a reverence for writing and literature. There's like a two page essay about. Shakespeare that doesn't say Shakespeare's name until the end when Shakespeare's dead and Shakespeare meets God. And that's where the the title Everything and Nothing comes from, where, you know, Shakespeare just wants to be himself in heaven. And God's like, no, you're like me, Shakespeare. You are both everything and nothing. You are all the voices you gave voice to, but nothing else. Um, this is just a, he's an interesting character. I want to know more about this man. Um, and it's just also just the academic fiction writing style is something that I don't you don't see a lot of these days. Um, yeah, at least I don't. And if people have contemporary writers that are working in a similar mode, uh, they should totally write them in. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Okay. I feel like we weren't as goofy or anything this time. It's just a couple of cool stories that people should probably read. Yeah, that's what happens when we do these anthologies. Sometimes is there's a there's less to riff on because there are so many like starting and ending points that we need to touch upon. But um, yeah, if, if you feel like you understood anything that Craig missed or could not understand with his, <laughs> with his enfeebled brain, you can email them to us at overdue pod at gmail.com. Uh, you can also tweet at us at twitter.com slash overdue pod and uh, join our Facebook page at facebook.com slash overdue pod. I'm really impressed that um, 
like a lot of our links up on our Facebook page seem to get decent conversations going. So like that, I really like that. Craig, do you, do you have a list of people who uh, got in touch with us this week? Yeah, I want to thank Tony, Danielle, Tysfine, Michael, Jillian, Sean, T, Annie, Robert, Margaret, of course, Alex, Catherine, Lee, Monica, Terry, Eric, and Nasha. Welcome back, Terry. He said he got a new phone and hadn't listened to us in a while. So welcome back, Jack. I mean, Terry. His name's Terry. Oops. Come on. Terry. Um, Craig, if they want to know more about the show or if they want to subscribe, where should they go? They should go to OverduePodcast.com. They can find out what we're reading next. Uh, they can excuse me, click on Amazon links to the various books that we've read. You can find links to our RSS feed, which you can plug into whatever subscri- subscription thing you want. But if you're just using an iPhone or whatever, you can use the link to our iTunes page. If you do use that link, please leave a rating or review. Uh, a, we just love to hear what people think about the show, and it gives us a little like dopamine drip when the reviews are good, and it also helps other people discover the show, which as more and more people are writing in or tweeting at us saying that they found us through a friend or found us through another source, it really is uh, really warms our heart to, to feel that people are out there evangelizing for us and our silly take on books. Yes, and um, in the last week or so, uh, Camilla365, Turner's Mama, Apt342, Book Lover Ria and Baby Cakes 45B have yeah. all left us very nice iTunes reviews. So thank you so much um, to all of you and to everybody else who's left us a review over the last like two years and change, however long it's been since we started doing this show. Um, that that really helps us out a lot. Um, next week, I'm going to be reading The Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte. It's uh, It's been... A long read like I it's one of those where where we've done a couple of episodes as I've been reading it and um, and I'm just now getting to the end of it but yeah I'm gonna do a lot of research on the Bronte sisters and and I hope that we can do an episode that does that like particular fandom justice Um, Craig anything else no I'm reading Outlander I'm gonna be sitting by a lake in Maine reading Outlander this week I can't wait That sounds awful. All right, everybody. (laughs) We'll see you next week. Until then, try to be happy.